0: You're listening to the Theology Mom Podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Happy night before Thanksgiving. I hope you and your family are staying well. Thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. Monique and I have uh, been just having some fun uh, during our free time, I guess, uh, reading through the book of Amos lately. And Amos is a very popular book used often by social justice oriented Christians uh, to uh, talk about justice issues. And what I wanted to do in this video, and I'll probably end up taking me to be a two part conversation, is I'm hoping to do two things. Uh, I know that many of you are very interested in learning more about how to properly interpret the Bible. So one of my goals and objectives in this short series is to model for you how to interpret a prophetic book of the Bible as well as give you insight into the big picture of the book of Amos itself. And hopefully along the way I want to also give you some give some consideration to how this book is used by social justice oriented Christians because there are definitely a lot of justice themes that come up in the book of Amos. So I want to help step us through some of those things so we can be thinking rightly about those those issues. And along the way, maybe highlight some places where I think uh, some social justice people kind of fall into the uh, interpretive ditch, if you will. So I'm going to lay some groundwork here on the, the book of Amos, and then Monique is going to come and jump in the other chair and eh, see there's nobody there right now i'm all alone (laughs) uh she's gonna come in and jump in and join the conversation for the second half of tonight as we work through the first couple of chapters of amos if you are new to my channel uh this channel is dedicated to proclaiming the historic christian faith as it was taught and preserved by the ancient church and to explore how we can respond to what's happening in our culture through the lens of the historic Christian worldview. Now, if you've tuned into this channel for more than 10 minutes, you know that this is not the channel where we do magic tricks with the Bible to make it fit what our culture is telling us right now. We look to the scriptures first to shape our thoughts, uh, shape our feelings and our opinions, and bring those things under the authority of scripture. And we use our history as Christians in the early church as sort of a check to help us make sure that we're staying on track, kind of providing some guardrails for us to keep us from wandering from the truth faith. So with all that said, let's get into this. Let's start with a little bit on the background of the book of Amos. Um, On the Theology Mom channel, we have a little saying that I borrowed from my friend Greg Kokel. Uh, We don't read a Bible verse and then quickly jump to an application. We go slowly, carefully. We look at verses in context as we unfold our study together. So let's talk about Amos. Who was Amos anyway? Let's start chapter one, verse one. He tells us right off the bat a little bit about himself. It says, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa and the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam son of Johash was king of Israel So we learn right away that the prophet Amos lived in a, uh, he was a shepherd. He lived in a small town called called Tekoa. Uh, Tekoa was uh, located about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So here's a little Bible study pro tip. um, And I like to throw these in every once in a while is it's always a good idea to read the Bible with a map nearby or to take the time to go find a map, Google a map, whatever you got to do. When I was reading the Bible, when my daughter Emily was very young, we always had our our Bible atlas nearby because uh, if there's a city, if there's a place, take the time to look it up and uh, orient yourself to the geography of the Holy Land. It really makes a difference in understanding the Bible sometimes. So uh, geography is going to play a huge role in the book of Amos. So let's look at a quick map here from amos's day we can see down and, and this is uh if you look there and it says the salt sea in the bottom middle there and you look right to the left there's Tekoa, and that's where amos was from and see how it's right under jerusalem that's about 10 miles uh, north of tokoa and so that kind of orients you that he is a prophet living in the southern kingdom he's living in in what they called the kingdom of Judah. Okay, later in the book of in the book of Amos in chapter 7 we read that um Amos was a grower of sycam- sycamore fig trees. Uh it says there in verse 14 I also took care of sycamore fig trees. Um and so he was a shepherd, he tended the flock, and he was a farmer of sorts. And so he he was not Uh, A professional, a professional prophet. It says, I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. You may have heard that little saying from time to time. It comes from the book of Amos. So what does this mean? Well, it means that he didn't come from a family of prophets. He didn't graduate from the official school of prophets. And yes, that was a thing in ancient Israel. You can look in uh, first uh, Kings, I believe. uh, And I think in Samuel, it's also mentioned that there was a school of prophets in, in the land at that time. So he's basically saying, I'm not a professional prophet. I didn't go to prophet seminary school. I am a shepherd and a farmer, and he's just simple, a simple man of the fields who obeyed the call of God. So that's a little bit about Amos and what we know about him. Okay. The next question is, when does the book of Amos take place? Well, figuring out the time and the place of the writing can really help us to understand the text in some deeper ways. So let's go back to chapter one, uh, verse one. It says that uh, he had a vision two years before the earthquake. Now, when scripture gives us these these little details about timelines or little incidental things, it's usually there to help us and we need to pay attention to those details Now, of course, we don't might not know off the top of our heads, what earthquake is he talking about? But it must have been significant enough to his readers that they would know exactly what year this was, because this earthquake would have been, um, you know, an an important time marker. So it's kind of like maybe uh, equivalent to 9-11. Like we all know uh, in this generation when and when that was, what year that was, it was 2001. So it is, this was a very important time marker. So we see a couple of additional details there. He's writing when King Uzziah was King of Judah and Jeroboam son of Joash was King of Israel. So we know that he's living in the divided kingdom period. He names the Kings. So these are all markers uh, and ways of Amos telling us uh, when he lived. Now, if we kind of begin to put these details together we can kind of begin to see how all of these things sync up so i've got this cool little chart here um, that i'm going to put on the screen that i borrowed from a website so on the left there we're going to see the uh, tribes of judah and we're going to see the tribes of israel in the north on the right and then in the middle are all of the prophets and I thought this was a very handy way of lining all of these things up So we see when Amos lives and we see how it corresponds with Uzziah On the left and another name that Uzziah goes by is Azariah And then Jeroboam the second and both of those kings had fairly long reigns and um, Amos comes along as a prophet during this time period. So we have a pretty good approximation um, in how things line up with that. So he's writing somewhere in the mid 800s BC. There's a third clue that Amos gives us about when the book was written in chapter six. It names these, these cities here. Go to, you see in verse two, go to Kalna and Hamath and Gath. These are, and it also mentions Mount Samaria. Um, And so these are cities that are known and we see these kingdoms that are represented here. So we read about the destruction of these three cities in particular, Kalna, Hamath, and Gath. Now, what Amos is doing is he's warning Israel, the northern kingdom, if you don't clean up your act, if you don't start obeying God's law, Um, you're going to get destroyed just like these cities. Well, we actually know from history when these cities were destroyed. And this time frame fits pretty nicely with these other details. And the reason I'm taking the time to point these things out is because when you're studying the Bible, you have to look at the details. You have to look at these markers of time and place, because the Bible describes real people in real times and real places. So our tendency in our modern context is just to skip right over these details, but taking the time to orient ourselves to who is the author, what details, what hints does he give me? What are the times and places? This helps us know that these are real people and real incidents. And this is not, the Bible is not a book of, uh, you know, cleverly devised tales, as it says in the epistle of Peter. These are real people. Now let's talk a bit about uh, more about the historical background of Amos, because if you don't understand the background of Amos and some historical events that happened before the book, you will not know what this book is about. And this is what makes interpreting the prophets so tricky, is that people have a tendency to just go read a, a verse from the prophets, pull it out of its context, and then apply it to our situation today. And that's not a great strategy for interpreting the Bible. We have to understand some historical backgrounds about these books because all of these prophets came to speak to particular kings and address particular problems in certain times and places. So we mentioned earlier that the kingdom was divided at this time. So we're going to pull up another map here to illustrate this in, in living color um, Israel was the northern kingdom and Judah was the southern kingdom. And you could see there, there's Jerusalem there in the south. And that was the capital of Judah. Now, the backstory of how these two kingdoms came to be divided happens in 1 Kings t- chapter 12. Now, if you have never taken the time to really look at 1 Kings chapter 12, you need to do that. Because that one chapter changes everything forward in the history of God's people and the importance of first Kings chapter 12 cannot be overstated in understanding the Old Testament. So here's the short version of what happens there. We had King David and he ruled and reigned and then he had many sons and then his son Solomon ascended to the throne and we All know Solomon. Well, after Solomon, this is where things get really kind of tricky. The kingdom became divided because one of Solomon's generals named Jeroboam tried to essentially establish a coup and take the kingdom over from Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Now it's very confusing. Their names rhyme. (laughs) I didn't write the book. This is just how it is. So you have to know Rehoboam was Solomon's son. Jeroboam was the general. So you can kind of remember that alliteration: Jeroboam, general. Okay. So we're gonna look just really briefly at First Kings chapter twelve, and what I want you to see here, and you, I really encourage you to go read the whole thing uh, in context. But what I want you to see here is a couple of very important details. Jeroboam goes to the, the north and he sets up his kingdom in the northern part and in the hill country of Ephraim. And he what he does is he's very concerned that his subjects are going to revert to the house of David. It says there in verse 26, and that means they'll be more loyal to Saul to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, than they are to him. So his concern is that if they're going to Jerusalem all the time to offer sacrifices in the temple, they're eventually going to switch their allegiance back over to Rehoboam. And then they'll return and they'll they'll kill him. <laughs> this is his concern. So after seeking advice, here is the sin of Jeroboam. The king made two golden calves. He said to the people... It's too much for you. It's too inconvenient for you to go to all the way to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So he set up a golden calf in Bethel and another one in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one calf at Bethel and Dan to worship the other. And then he also built some shrines and high places. And then here's another key. He appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Like he got some priests that were probably politically loyal to him and appointed them. You got some guys and he made them priests. Basically, they were not from the the proper ancestry. They weren't qualified. OK, not only that, he institutes his own festivals. So instead of doing the festivals that God ordained in the law of You know, the the new year and the day of atonement and this sort of thing. He says, okay, we need to have alternative worship centers. We need to have some alternative priests and some alternative holidays. And so he instituted these festivals for the Israelites and went up to the altars to make the offerings. Okay, these few verses turn everything that happens after this point. After first Kings 12, you have to understand this. So I'm going to go to another map here just to make sure that we understand what's happening. So I want you to see in the South there, there's Bethel. You see that in the green section, in the Southern part of the green section. And then you see in the North up part of the green section, you see Dan. It's way in the North. So he sets up these two alternative worship centers one in the north, one in the south. You could pick the one that's most convenient for you, but you don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem because that would be crossing the border and you might not be as loyal to him anymore. So this is very, very important to understand when we start looking at the book of Amos. Okay, if you don't understand the sin of Jeroboam, pretty much everything else that happens after that in the Old Testament isn't going to make a lot of sense. The sin of Jeroboam was referenced several times in the book of Kings. And these alternative worship centers became the foundational sin, which Israel just could never get past. Um, And it did eventually result in them being carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. Now, one thing I want to point out is that in the language of the Hebrew there, um, I don't think that Jeroboam was setting up uh, inherently a different God. He, he, what he was doing was he was setting up kind of a seeker friendly version of Israel's God. He wasn't trying to say, this is a different God. What he was trying to do was set up an alternative way of worshiping Yahweh. So according to the law, the proper way to worship was you had to go to the temple. You had to offer a sacrifice and you had to go through a certain kind of a priest Jeroboam says, okay, you can still go to this God, but we're just going to like freestyle things a little bit. We're going to have, we're not going to have a temple in Jerusalem. You go to these alternative worship centers. You can still worship the correct God. You're just worshiping him more creatively, we might say. And that is never going to please God. We must worship the correct God correctly. And this is the sin of the Northern Kingdom. So Amos comes on the scene. (laughs) The kingdom of the north is flourishing. They are rich. They are prosperous. They don't have a care in the world. Things are going good. And into this scene comes a shepherd telling them to repent. Okay, one final issue before we bring Monique in and dig into chapter one. Let's talk about the genre of literature of what Amos is. Now, the idea that the Bible has different genres of literature might be new to some of you. So again, I'm trying to show you and teach you along the way how to interpret a a prophetic book of the Bible. So when we think about genres of literature in our modern context, we might think of the genre of historical fiction or comic books, newspapers, or science fiction. Each of these genres has its own characteristics, and we all intuitively know that reading a comic book is not the same thing as reading a newspaper, at least theoretically. (laughs) Right now, the media is a mess, but we kind of have an intuition of, okay, these rules apply to comic books and these rules apply to newspapers. When we think about the Bible, the Bible also has many genres of literature. There is poetry and history um, apocalyptic literature, ancient Near Eastern laws, letters, we call them epistles. Well, the book of Amos is a prophetic book and prophetic books sometimes make predictions about the future, about often about the coming of the Messiah. But more often, the theme of prophetic books is to call Israel and Judah back to obey God's law. They're kind of, ringing the bell of disobedience and saying, stop going this direction, come back. They're almost like law enforcement or police. They're, they're there to, to really remind the people of the law and to call them back to faithfulness. Amos is a book that focuses on covenant enforcement. Amos is calling God's people back to obedience God's law as outlined in the Torah. So we see these stipulations and punishments laid out at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 28. So if you wanted to read kind of another background for the book of Amos, it would definitely be Deuteronomy 28. The first part of the chapter is all the blessings. If you fully obey the Lord, your God and carefully follow all his commands, the Lord, you, Your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. All blessings will come to you if you obey. Okay. So this is a conditional covenant and notice the blessings that come. It's, it's children, it's flocks, it's, it's riches. Okay. It's food. Now let's scroll down to verse 15 here. We also see that what's going to happen if they disobey, if you do not obey the Lord, your God, and do not carefully follow all of his commands, these curses will come on you. Both your cities and your and the, the places in the country will be cursed. Your food will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. Um, everywhere you go, there will be curses. There will be confusion. Okay, so these are the consequences of disobedience. So when Amos comes on the scene, here he is a simple shepherd, a farmer, not a professional prophet, but he he comes into a time and a place when the country is flourishing. But we need to keep these curses and blessings from Deuteronomy in mind, because what Amos is doing is reminding the people, these are the things that are going to happen to you if you don't obey God's commands, okay? So if you want to learn more about the different genres of literature in the Bible, I highly recommend the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, This is the book currently on Amazon. It's in the fourth edition. Um, Probably uh, one of the most important books I ever read in seminary. Very accessible if you're a lay person. Um, It's a great book. All right, we're going to get Monique to come in here. Okay. Oh, good. You got your Bible. All right.
1: Hey, everybody. What's up, y'all? All All right. You ready to talk about Amos? Yes. I've been in seminary for 37 minutes.
0: Well, I just gave a little crash course on the background. So let's... Jeroboam, Rehoboam. That's right. Remember when we first talked about that? Yes. You were like, what are we talking about? Why do their names rhyme? I'm so confused. All right. So let's get into chapter one here. When it says the Lord roars from Zion, the thunders from Jerusalem, the pastors of the camel, of the shepherds, dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. The thing you have to know in Amos is that there are going to be a ton of geographical places missing mentioned, and they're all very symbolic. So you have to look at these geographical locations to know what they're talking about. So Zion and Jerusalem are the south, and Carmel, Mount Carmel, you might remember the incident with Elijah and the prophets Uh, of Baal on Mount Carmel. That's in the north. So it's it's basically saying, you know, hey, listen up, everyone. I got a message for you. All right. So first, we're going to talk about Israel's neighbors. And this is really interesting. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even four, I will not relent. Because she thrashed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazal, and I will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker. says the Lord. Okay, so I'm going to kind of teach you here how to crack this code because it's going to be a repeated Mm -hmm. pattern throughout these two chapters. So the sins of Damascus, we have to look on our friendly neighborhood map. So we see Damascus way up there at the top. It's in a country called Aram. Okay. So when Amos is talking to Damascus, he's talking to that whole neighboring country. So it would be like, us talking to one of our neighbors. What's the capital of Mexico? Is it Mexico City?
1: You're asking me? Yeah. Yeah. No.
0: Yeah, I think it's Mexico City. (laughs) So it'd be like, you know, I'm talking to Mexico City. Well, that's symbolic for the whole country of Mexico. Mm
1: -hmm. And Damascus now, you have to remember, is a Gentile area.
0: Yes, that's very important. Okay. So when we go to their sins, let's go back to chapter one here. So it says... For three sins, even four, I will not relent. Now, he's going to repeat that pattern three, even four, I will not relent, like, several times.
1: Does it have a meaning? Like, is there something to that?
0: Based on the research I did, it doesn't seem so. It's just saying, like, they're they're piling sin upon sin. Mm -hmm. It's it's this multiplication idea of sin upon sin. And what's coming to me, I could be totally wrong, but... um, you know, it's like we say in the book of Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. Mm-hmm. That's the only trait of God that is to the, kind of the third power. We don't ever see the trait of God of love, 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 mercy, mm-hmm. mercy, mercy. It's only holy, holy, holy. But it's to give us the idea of he is immensely holy. Mm-hmm. So here we have three sins, even four. It's like it's just.
1: You got some sins. You got going some on.
0: massive sins. It's a magnification Straighten of. Straighten yourself out. People. Yeah. So she threshed Gilead with sledges of having iron teeth and gilead is god's people yes very good because now we have this other geographical thing and so it's like well what does that symbolically stand for gilead is a city in in uh, i think it's in judah um but it's it's part of god's covenant people and so it's basically saying you know you tortured my people you put them to death in a barbaric and brutal Mm -hmm. way. What's interesting is that if you look in Kings, uh, you actually read the story of what happens to Ben Hadad and how God ends up destroying uh, that King. And that's a real person. Mm. Like we know him from history and um, that's a family of Kings and God is promising I'm going to break down your gate. In other words, I'm I'm coming for you <laughs> and I'm going to destroy your king. And the one who holds the scepter, that's a uh, that's a, a reference to a king and the people of Aram, which is their country, will go into exile. So he he's kind of forth, foretelling what's going to happen to the people of Aram if uh, as a result of their sins. So let's go on to the next one. So here we have the same pattern again. Gaza. What's the sin this time in verse six?
1: Um, they took whole communities captive mm. and sold them. So they were into the slave trading situation. Yeah. Not cool. Mm-mm. Now, and Gaza is another Gentile area. Yeah. So let's
0: go back to our map for a minute here. So we've got. Um, our map: Gaza is down in the Philistine territory. So, if people remember the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. Mm-hmm. These were the coastal people, and so this is a judgment against the Philistines for capturing people and putting them into slavery. Um, so, do you remember what the the penalty was for? Slave catchers, slave traders.
1: You mean you mean the one that that Paul talks about in the in the law? Yeah, oh, in the Old Testament. No, do you remember? I don't. It's death. It's a capital crime. Because Paul talks about um, man snatchers yes. and enslavers. Same thing. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, that they wouldn't, wouldn't inherit the kingdom of God.
0: Right. So essentially the same penalty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's that. Which is eternal death. So he's they sell them to Edom, and Edom is on the other side of the the sea there and those are the descendants of esau and so they take these people captive and then sell them into slavery so this is the this is the great sin of the philistines Mm -hmm. all right let's scroll down here a little bit now we have the three sins of tire i will not relent so what's the sin here in verse nine
1: she sold whole communities of captives to Edom um disregarding a treaty of brotherhood
0: yeah so here we have more more man snatching problems oh,
1: don't man snatch
0: <laughs> and Edom seems to like a a lot of um slave buy a lot of slaves mm-hmm. they they seem to be uh the purchasers of a lot of slaves so this is a big a big sin that god uh speaks about and i think what's interesting is you know coming into the context of the slave trade you know 200 300 years ago the man snatching component yes was a big part of that Mm -hmm. and that was a deep violation of of god's law yes yeah verse 11 for three sins of edom so Edom was a mess (laughs) it was a mess he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Teman and will consume the fortresses of Basra. So when we think about Edom, I don't think Edom's on our little map. Let's go back to it. So Edom's at the bottom there. And again, these are the descendants of Esau. And again, this is a Gentile nation. Mm-hmm. So they were purchasing a lot of slaves, but they were also killing women mm-hmm. in a barbaric way. And um, let's go back to the to Amos here. Um, so and they pursued his brother with a sword. So they're engaged in murder, slave trade and slaughtering women This is a pretty, pretty barbaric people. Uh, that they were, uh, God is pronouncing a judgment on them. All right, three sins of Ammon. Let's go on to verse 13. This one's a little brutal. Mm. What does it say there in verse 13?
1: He ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. Ugh.
0: So what, what's happening there, do you think?
1: I'm not sure. The only thing I can think of is that they didn't want... um more more people being produced and so if they didn't want if there weren't children then there wouldn't be anyone to extend the lineage
0: that's right and you kill all the children you wouldn't have any soldiers Mm -hmm. you would reduce the population when you kill children you cripple the population you destabilize a country and again gilead is symbolic for god's people in judah and so the sin here is that they're engaging in this horrible, terrible practice of killing babies, ripping them out of their their mothers, which is effectively de- destabilizing the country of God's people. So this is a this is a fairly, um, again, a, a fairly terrible sin. Now Ammon, the the people of Ammon. Let's look at our map again. There it is to the right so this is again another gentile nation so amos is just systematically going through all of the neighbors and showing them their sins Mm -hmm. okay let's go back to amos go to amos 2 this is what uh god says to moab all right another now who is a famous moabite do you you remember
1: um not esther Mm -mm, that's Um, close though it's another woman um 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 ruth ruth yeah
0: ding 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 so yes so a very famous moabite is ruth so let's read about the sin of moab he burned to ashes the bones of edom's king i will send a fire on moab and consume the fortresses i will destroy her ruler and kill all of her officials with him so this would be like the functional equivalent of God killing our president, killing his whole cabinet, killing the Supreme Court. Hmm. You know, it, it, this de- if you want to destabilize a country quickly, wipe out all the leaders. Yeah. Because people won't have anyone to follow. What do you think's going on there about he burned, his, burned the king's bones to ashes? Why would God be upset about
1: that? I was asking the same question because I was like, you was just about to get on Edom. So yeah. why are you mad that Moa <laughs> got him first? Yeah. You, I would give a thank you because you know, you saved me a trip. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, I'm not sure. I think that though, it's not for us to take vengeance. It's not for us to kill. It's not for us to put ourselves or to insert ourselves in that place. <laughs> so God has already said that these are the judgments and he's declared what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. But that's his place as God, not yeah. our place as humans, because there's a certain way in which we are to interact with one another. Yeah. And so if, and so I think in, you know, burning the bones, that would be a violation of how we should probably, you know, act with one another.
0: <laughs> so what's interesting to me about this is that um in, there was kind of a sensibility in ancient Judaism of not desecrating bodies. Um, today, we, we don't think twice about cremation. That's not a big deal to us at all. Mm-hmm. But for ancient Jews and even Orthodox Jews today, there's, there's something important about the physical body. And that they didn't desecrate the dead. There's, there's, a, there's a book in the intertestamental period called the book of Tobit, which is an interesting book about a very righteous Jewish man. And he lives at a time of great wickedness. But basically what the book is about is about him going out and finding bodies that have been laid desecrated for the birds to pick them apart. And he buries them and he goes out and he secretly buries them. And he's, he's, he's seen as being a righteous person. Because he's he's burying these bodies and giving them a proper hmm. proper burial, and so one idea I've had about what's happening here is that they are desecrating the dead. That that's that's part of the the, the sin here is the desecration of dead bodies, and that that's not God's God's way of doing things. But um, what's interesting to me too about this is. That like, I think that intuitively what we're doing here in in showing people, because part of the purpose of doing this exercise is to display or to model for people how to interpret the Bible properly. Mm -hmm. And you're just naturally doing the things that is good to do is asking questions. Well, why is this happening? Who are these people? Where are, where are they? What's, what's going on here? Why does God want to? You know, judge this, these people when he already pronounced judgment over here, like what's happening. That's a very powerful tool for Bible study is asking questions. You want to really ask a lot of questions of the text. So I have a question for you. It's a very important question. Put you on the spot. So why is God condemning these pagan nations? Like they don't have his law. Why would he be condemning them? He does. He doesn't have a a covenant agreement with them and like it he hasn't does with been Israel. Written on their hearts, yeah, yet. and it hasn't been written on their hearts. So, what what do you think is happening there?
1: Well, again, we're just asking questions. What I think is that it goes back to Noah. Okay, and what was told to Noah um, before? All of these peoples came. Like there were some gen- there were some general guidelines and principles for how you're supposed to act with one another. That was that was given before all of these different peoples mm-hmm. split into these different tribes and groups. And so, at, on some level, everybody has the same information. Everybody should have the same um, instruction for for participation with one another. God extrapolates, or he brings away a certain people, but just because he brought away those people doesn't mean that everybody still didn't have the same initial instruction.
0: That's that's a pretty good intuition. I think I think you might be onto something there. So, talks in Genesis nine about God's covenant with Noah, but this is a covenant that sometimes is called the covenant of the Gentiles or the covenant of the nations. And this is a covenant that God makes with all humans. This is before Abraham. This is before the Jews were a people. So when God makes this covenant with Noah, it is similar to the Adam covenant in that he's given the command again to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. But then God gives this additional command. If we can scroll down here in verse four and following, and it talks about how God will demand an accounting for killing other human beings. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for the image of God. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. So this is kind of a baseline commandment that God has given to all the nations that you are not to engage in what we might call barbaric practices or violations of human rights. Mm -hmm. We don't put people in gas chambers. Mm -hmm. We don't rip out pregnant women's children Mm -hmm. out of their womb. Um, And if you notice- We don't slaughter. We don't slaughter people Mm -hmm. and we don't engage in the slave trade because man snatching or slave catching was a capital offense, Mm -hmm. just as murder was a capital offense. And so there was kind of these- These basic laws that all the nations had. had. And um, I think that if you notice in these condemnations against the nations in Amos chapters one and two, a lot of them are kind of revolving around.
1: This is the simple stuff. This is stuff that everybody should know. Should know. Don't come at me with your, I didn't know. Excuse me. (laughs) Excuse me, God. I didn't know. No, everybody had this information. This is like the general, just put it all out there before we do all the intricate, like you go with this group and you don't go with that group. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I have a a colleague at my place of employment who actually has done a ton of work on this particular issue and looking back in history to the earliest people groups and how that they did have kind of this shared sensibility of some basic laws. Mm-hmm. And it it hearkens me to wonder if it comes from the the Noahic covenant or this covenant of the nations. So now let's go back to Amos chapter 2 and read the shift here. Let's scroll down to um, verse 4.
1: Now, what's, now who's he talking to? Now he's talking to Judah. Yeah. He says, for the three sins of Judah... Even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods, their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem.
0: Okay. So now what is the sin that's in view here?
1: They have rejected the law of the Lord. Yes. So this, and these are God's people.
0: Yes. So this is very important. Now, remember all the places are symbolic. So when it talks about the sins of Judah, if we can go back to our map here a minute, um, Judah is there in the south. Mm -hmm. So this is the kingdom of
1: Rehoboam.
0: Yes. This is the southern kingdom. Now Y'all already
1: talked about the false worship centers in Bethel. Yeah. Man, you could have let me in here for that one. So in Judah,
0: this is the remnant of God's people that are left. Mm -hmm. It's two tribes. It's the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and the Levite priests that don't have land. And they have the true temple in Jerusalem. They still have the true priesthood and the true sacrifices. So this is what's left of God's people is down there in Judah. But they are already engaged in sin. And what is their sin? It is false worship. Mm, mm,
1: mm.
0: They are starting to worship the gods of the nations around them. So notice God doesn't condemn the other nations for false worship. He condemns them for these, what we would call in modern context, human
1: rights violations, these gross killings. Now, is that because they had the general information, the stuff that everybody had, yeah. but, and the worship part was given to Israel specifically?
0: Yeah, so think like the Ten Commandments. Think mm-hmm. of like the first three commandments. That was a covenant that God made with Israel directly. Yes. That you had to worship the correct God and you had to worship him the correct way in the temple with these sacrifices, with these priests Mm -hmm. and these festival days. You could not freestyle. Yeah. (laughs) This was not the seeker sensitive program where we're going to kind of do things our own way. Uh, it's too
1: early to be one of us seeker sensitive too soon. Too soon. That's
0: not good. All right, let's go back to Amos chapter two here. So they've been led astray by false gods and they have not kept his decrees. This is the sin of Judah. And God is, is foretelling. He's warning Judah. He's going to send fire on them. He's going to consume their fortresses. Now let's scroll down here and read our final section for tonight. Before we wrap up, and that is the sins of Israel. So now we're getting to the kingdom of the north. And this is, again, the kingdom of Jeroboam. Now let's see what what their sins are. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So they're taking people, they're selling them into slavery. They're They're taking the poor, taking advantage of them selling them into slavery. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed father and son use the same girl. And so profane my holy name, probably some, some temple prostitution possibly going on here or some kind of incest. We're not really sure. They lie down beside every altar on on garments taken in pledge So they're taking things from poor people like is in pawning situations, that the poor can't afford to go without their clothes. And then they're using them for ungodly practices in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as cedars and strong as oaks. And so in other words, you know, I destroyed these neighboring countries and they were strong. They Mm -hmm. were, they, they, they were fortified. I destroyed them, their fruit to the root, all the way. Mm. And he's saying, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you for 40 years. I gave you the land of the Amorites. I gave you prophets among your children. Um, and then now I will crush you. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. As the cart crushes the grain, the swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. In other words, they are going to get run over. Their soldiers, the best of their soldiers will be run over. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day. day. Mm. So this is a pretty harsh judgment that's coming. So social justice people would point to this terminology here. Let's go back to right here. So trampling on the heads of the poor, selling the needy for sandals, acting like the poor are just like the dust of the ground, denying justice. And, you know, those, those verses there, six and seven, would be what our social justice friends would really camp out on. Mm-hmm. But what we have to know is what, is what is behind all of these words is the law. It's exodus. Deuteronomy Leviticus Mm -hmm. it's what it's saying here in a shortened form is you have violated my covenant commands and so this isn't we have to be careful not to just take that word justice or oppressed Mm -hmm. and jump into into 21st century America yes now we're gonna look at the oppressed over here and so you know judgment's gonna come against us because we're against the oppressed are we going to slow down and understand what is happening here? What's the
1: context in this
0: context? Yeah, yeah.
1: And who are the oppressed? And like, what is he talking about specifically? And what was the the history around it? Yeah, yeah. That's a good word.
0: Let's let's go back to chapter two for a second here. So when we had in verse four, it was really violating kind of the first three commandments of God's law mm-hmm. of of not worshiping. Um, other gods, not making graven images, that sort of thing. Then we get to verse 7, down here, we have violating laws about selling your neighbors into slavery.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, We have, and that was from Deuteronomy. I think I have that passage on Bob's list here. Yeah, Deuteronomy 24. If someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and and treating or selling them as a slave, that kidnapper must die. So you can't just sell your neighbor into slavery. Mm -hmm. You can't sell your neighbor into slavery, even if they owe you money. Like that's not how that works. You can't do that. Um, Verse seven also talks about denying justice to the oppressed in a court of law right here. Deny justice to the oppressed. What is this justice that they are um, engaging in? I think what's behind this verse is a verse like Exodus chapter 23. It says, do not deny justice to the, to your poor people in their lawsuits. Mm-hmm. That the, the poor had a right to bring a suit into the court and get a hearing. They could go to a judge and have something arbitrated. And they had the right to do that. But if you didn't allow those cases, you only took the cases from the rich. You only allowed the cases Of the people who could pay off judges Mm -hmm. that that would be a violation of god's justice
1: now i do have a question and andre asked this question too um what is the hebrew word from which justice is translated and what does it mean and so i know that there's two words that we look at when we talk about justice yeah and I'm wondering in this passage here in Amos, if it's talking about the righteousness form of justice, like our personal righteousness, yeah. or if it's talking about the legal form of justice.
0: I would have to look it up. Let me see if I can do it really quick on, or maybe one of my moderators if Caleb's yeah, still there. A, I don't know Go Caleb's look it up, up on Bible Hub for me of Amos seven, And my guess is that it's Mishpat, but it would be good to look.
1: Um Mishpat being though personal righteousness right. versus Sadaka being No, it was reversed. Mishpat okay. is
0: more like the in the court of law. Okay. Sadak is more of like personal righteousness, things that I do. So if you look on Bible Hub, look up Amos two seven.
1: But it is good to understand that there are two different things occurring even with the same word and when we consider things like justice if you don't understand what people are talking about or if you don't understand what the context and the, how the word is being used in scripture people who do uphold things like social justice can be calling you into doing justice when the scripture context is actually talking about the legal weights and measures where social justice worries are generally calling you into like how you should treat someone your own act of of personal righteousness
0: yeah
1: can you say more about what SJW people are saying about this verse how they are using it one of the things that I think I see is um, the reason why we should have for lack of a better word socialism or, you know, all of these programs and things like that, because look at how we treat the poor or look at how we treat the marginalized. But everyone becomes marginalized. Your intersections make you marginalized. So I am a black woman. There should be, you know, special consideration for me because I am a marginalized person. Uh, LGBTQ, if I identified as LGBTQ, then I would have, you know, being black, female, and an lgBTq identified person as my intersections, and that would be um, that would be reason for me to be considered marginalized and there should be special consideration given to me when we read the word because I am marginalized and oppressed, I would have a different lens into the scripture than what someone else would have who did not identify as black, female, or lgbtq plus. And so when you read this verse, then we have to do all these works to either promote or, oh, there's a word that I'm looking for, not assist, but to undergird the 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 marginalized people that is justice and they continue there is a continued addition to what this justice is so now it's be things like become anti-racist read this book like there's all of these works that are added on to justice and when you look at some verses in scripture when it talks about justice it's literally talking about don't treat the poor different than the rich in a court of law but they only see the word justice. And I'm telling you because I used to do this too. I would only see the word justice and would automatically think, oh, this is my, my personal righteousness act. This is the way that I should treat someone else. Not that it's talking about court of law justice. Yes, it can include that. But it, I would look at it and say, well, see, this is why we need all of these programs to help all of these people because the Lord tells us to do justice. That's good,
0: I'm glad you provided that background, okay. I think this is interesting. I'm so glad for whoever asked this Andre. question. Andre, you are demonstrating in real time the value of asking a question,
1: <laughs> and Andre bring it home come on
0: and to me this is this is how you know how we always have those conversations about getting everyone at the table. Mm-hmm. It drives me nuts because it's all focused on people's skin color. This is like an 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 example of an actually helpful way to think about everybody being at the table and having the body of Christ, because Andre asks this very thoughtful question. I didn't look this up ahead of time. The question didn't occur to me.
1: But I love that, having all the people at the table.
0: I know you do. I but, really do, but this is great because it, the question is, is what is this word of justice? How is that translated in Hebrew? So, you know, what's fascinating is that's kind of not in the Hebrew. So the, the English standard version is a little bit more lib- literal, than the niv mm-hmm. i like the niv because it's more readable but andre really drew our attention to an important thing here and that is that the niv is is not very literal and this is a much better translation after looking at it in hebrew and this is from the english standard version the esv and if you notice in this version th- there's no there's nothing about the word justice mm. It's not actually in
1: the Hebrew, you know, in my Bible class, we had to do a a language translation project and you would be amazed at how different words and whole chunks of scripture are from the King James version all the way through to something like the message mm-hmm. where the King James version can be pretty close to the original. And then you go new King James ESV or whatever. NASB. Yeah, or something. NASB. Thank yeah. you. And, and then you get to, by the time you get to the message, it's like you're reading a whole different story. Yeah. So this is a good point that you're bringing up. And I think yeah. people would be surprised if they even just went on something like Bible gateway and just looked at all the different yeah. translations and how they say it.
0: So let's look at this verse here. To, let's go back to that ESV. So you see here where it says, "Those who trample the uh, the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted." That word, Hebrew word for the way, is what the NIV popped into justice, but that's actually not the word. It's more like the path. And so you're you're putting an obstacle in the path of the poor Mm. that's that's the the gist of it so we can go to the bible hub uh thing now so there it is so in hebrew you read from right to left so we would start over there where it says they pant you see that Mm -hmm. so after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and the way you see where it says the end of the way over here that's the word that the niv puts it as to justice but it's not actually the word justice. Yes. So Alicia
1: um, says, interesting, the CSB says obstruct the path of the needy.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's just what I said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's like you're putting something in their way. So it's not um, that word justice is a little tricky uh, yeah. it, because it, it brings a different connotation to it in the NIV translation.
1: And people will use that to really trip people up. Yeah. And I think that, you know, maybe not for any, you know, harmful intent, but just not properly exegeting the the text. Yeah. And then they have you doing all kind of marches and protests and reading. Yeah. And gymnastics. So,
0: okay, we're going to put a bookmark right there and come back uh, next week for part two. So we're doing this
1: again. Yeah. I'm just playing. I need to. I'm just playing. (laughs) Just playing.
0: so we're going to put a bookmark there we're going to keep working our way through the next couple chapters next time in the meantime if you take some time to read through the entire book of amos it's not terribly long it'll only probably take you about 20 minutes to read it in one sitting you want to try to do that because the best way to uh, this is another pro tip on how to study the bible is you want to read it the book um several times in its entirety over and over again to really start to understand the whole movement of the book, because then you can go back and look at the pieces and you know how it fits into the whole. So ideally a couple of times so you can get the feel of it. And another pro tip is read it out loud. The Bible was written and meant to be read aloud. That's how it was done in the early church or in the synagogue. People didn't have Bibles in their homes. They went to the public gathering in order to hear the word read. So it'll help your mind stay focused. It'll help your mind not wander. And it's going to help you notice details you normally skip over when you just read it inside
1: your head. So read it out loud. Here's another thing, too. And one is going to take you more than 20 minutes to read through this. Let's just be honest, folks. Um, That's one. But then two is to read it and take notes. Just jot down things that come to your mind when, like, as you're reading. Questions, Questions, observations, thoughts, observations, whatever. And come back ready with that next week. And I would say read it in one other version. Yeah. And just see what the similarities are and what the differences are. You might be really surprised with, you know, how something is read in the King James version wor- versus how something's read in like the passion translation or the, which the, is not a
0: translation.
1: It's there <laughs> or the message translation or something like that. So yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed. This is a little
0: different than a normal uh, podcast, but trying to bring some teaching to you guys. Uh, that's all for now. Uh, Linda. Thanks for watching and spending part of your holiday weekend with us. We hope you have a good Thanksgiving and remember to give thanks in all things because God is good. May God bless you. Have a good night. Bye. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.